You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ramona Emerson is a Dine writer and filmmaker originally from Tohachi, New Mexico. As a police department photographer in Albuquerque, New Mexico, she spent 16 years documenting crime scenes. She's an Emmy nominee, a Sundance Lab Fellow, a Time Warner Storyteller Fellow, a Tribeca All Access grantee, and a WGBH Producer Fellow. Her new novel is Shudder. Thank you for joining me, Ramona. Thank you for having me. You know, Ramona, one of the interesting things about reading this novel is, you know, your CV is right there on the back. And so as we read the novel and think about your CV, we know that there's a lot of uh, communication between the two. (laughs) I mean, when you started this job 16 years ago or so, did you... Were you thinking of yourself as a writer and a storyteller, or were you thinking of yourself as a person who told stories to the police via the pictures you took? Well, I just graduated from film school at the time, so I felt, I think I felt like I was going to be a filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker probably, but I hadn't realized it at that point. Um, So when I took the job, uh, with my boss, Jerry, it was just out of desperation to get a job where I got to use a camera, um, which was really difficult to do at that time. In New Mexico, we didn't really have a film industry yet. So it was it was hard to find a job in the film industry unless you were part of the union. And of course, you couldn't become part of the union unless you got a job. So it was like that vicious circle of <laughs> not having a job in the film industry. So I walked, um, I started calling, cold calling people out of the phone book and asking for a job. Um, and this gentleman happened to hire me. Um, and I worked for him for 16 years and we worked, we worked for all kinds of people. Um, I wasn't, I, I didn't necessarily work for APD as in the crime scene unit, but I just worked as their, hmm, I guess it was their specialist. They would bring things to us to fix to zoom in on, to get ready for trial. And that was my job. And I I, I spent a lot of time later on um, when my boss kind of stopped working. Um, he had mobility issues, and I had to take over like photography and videography jobs. And um, I realized pretty quickly that the work that we were doing, whether it was a deposition, um, I used to make day-in-the-life documentaries. That was kind of my specialty. Um, and all of that work that we did was like you just, just like you said, it was telling the story through the photography, through the crime, through the crime scene photos, through the incident photos, through the evidence photos and the video, um, everything from depositions all the way down to visiting the scene. Um, all of that is part of telling a story for a jury or telling a story for the judge. And it's your job to do everything perfectly by the book and and um, as is described in your certification manual. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was, 
it was difficult, hard work, but I think it was also training for being a documentary filmmaker. Um, because it, while I was doing that work, I was also making films on the weekend with my husband. And that's part of the reason why I stayed at that job for so many years. It was difficult and it was stressful sometimes, um, especially after I had my son. It was very stressful to keep that schedule up. Um, but regardless, after all of that, and on the weekends, my boss would let me take the, the photography and um, videography equipment home to work on my documentaries. And I think that's why I stayed there so long, because so I could have access to all that equipment. <laughs> so you were you you came into the you know your adult life in the working world as a, a storyteller, and I think one of the, the other just absolutely key aspects that jumped out at me as I as I read this book was you know using using the supernatural as a means of externalizing things is is a normal uh, trope. It's often used by many writers really successfully but i think as we read your story what we realize is there's a kind of a key difference and it sets in from the first very first sentence to the end of the book which is that you are already immersed in a world and in a culture that accepts and understand has a real defined understanding of the afterlife and ghosts and their present presence in our world so that it makes as we read this we can't help but be informed by it and it makes it much more immediate for us as readers we really are like right there with you so i i'd like you to talk about just a little bit about you know the kind of how culture at a really deep and almost uh undetectable level influences the vision of the character and your vision of the character as a writer. Those are two separate things. Oh, yes. Um, I think <laughs> it was it's the culture of what Dine believed of surrounding death is very central to the story of Shudder. And um, me, as a writer, talking about death as a Diné person was also very scary. Um, I'm not going to lie. I was worried about how my people would think about what I was writing and if they would read it because I knew that there's a stigma, there is a superstition attached to even speaking about death. Um, but as a writer, I also, and as a photographer, I also knew that death was a part of life and it was something that even though I was afraid of it when I first started doing forensics, eventually it just became a job. And I had to overcome and forget about years of teaching, cultural teaching about what I was doing and move forward with my work. Um, in the same way Rita does in the novel. She, at some point, for Rita, it's different though because we have this supernatural element, which I didn't have. Being a photographer, um, I you know I I'm so glad I didn't have that, but, but Rita has this issue. So you know she when she's able to speak with the dead since uh, since she was a baby since she was an infant it's something that's just been a part of her life and and a part of her experience. So when I was writing for Rita, um, 
that was the ultimate thing for me when I was first writing the novel is that one element that really changed the direction of the book is the fact of, that she could see ghosts. Because in my mind, I was thinking, you know, doing these what-if scenarios in the early stages. And one of the what-ifs was, well, what, what if Rita could communicate with dead people? Oh, that would probably be like the worst thing ever. For a Diné person, for a Navajo person, that would be like the biggest curse because people would, you would be ostracized. Like people would think you were crazy or you were a witch or something was wrong with you. I mean, it would be something really horrible and something that you would need protection from. So immediately when that that element of the story came to be when I was writing the book, it changed everything. And I think that's the reason is that stigma, that belief, that cultural belief, both with me and with Rita, kind of holding back of what we were going to do or like it would always be something that we would think about when we were doing our jobs. And uh, so it's kind of, yeah. It's a wonderful internal conflict. It's akin to uh, somebody who's brought up in a deep Christian tradition uh, from childhood, like, say, feeling that they were receiving messages from the devil. <laughs> whether, whether or not it happened, it would be very, very hard to deal with, you know, as a person and writing about it. I, and I thought you did. It adds a wonderful urgency, and I love the Rita's voice. She is a really great character. <clears throat> Talk about developing that voice, Rita's perceptions. I I just thought they were really uh, engrossing. That For when I'm with, it's one of those books that you read kind of in as few sittings as possible, so you can remain immersed in that world in, in that vision. Well, I think for me, Rita um, was like the camera, um, and you can see when she comes in to a scene, she will tell you everything about what's happening there. And I think for me, as a filmmaker, <laughs> um, I like to tell stories that way. So it was like an easy transition for me to make Rita like the visual camera inside the world of Shutter. So when you read it, you really get a complete detailing of like every single thing because that's what you would see um, if you had a camera and you were filming. Um, so it's really important, I think, to kind of maintain that through the whole thing. And I think Rita kind of does. But I like the way, um, I think Rita's gone through a lot in her life and it reflects on the way she just deals with things. And it's not, it's, she doesn't have time to complain about it really. And she has no time to, um, to cry about it or to be upset about it you just deal with it and it's the, and her whole life is like that and i think that's really inspired um that's really inspired by all the navajo women i know my mom my grandmother my aunts my cousins all of us ladies that uh, grew up out on the res it's just you don't wait for somebody else to do something for you because it's you know it's just something that you just do yourself and i think we we're all taught that from a very early age as as a matrilineal society, especially, and we're at the home, it's up to us to get things done. And women do. And I really felt um, they're a little piece of all those people I knew in Rita. And that's, you know, she's just tough. And she just moves through it um, without any regard for, or, you know, for her own 
health and her own need to eat and sleep and things like that. Um, and it's just something I think that women do on the daily um, as moms, as working moms. And for when, for me, when I was growing up, for all these, you know, young Diné moms who just power through it all, and we're just always astonished by how much we're able to get done. You know, you do a wonderful, clever, and beautiful uh, job of storytelling in this book because we experience two storylines at once. One starts as Rita meets an unusual choice for another main character in the novel, and the other one is Rita as a child growing up, and those two plot lines dovetail so that eventually the growing up becomes part of what's happening in the present. Uh, I, that's a great choice because it gives us a vision of Rita and also of the DNA culture, which is, I really like it. It's a very DIY kind of a culture because <laughs> if you don't DIY, nobody else is going to do it. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. I mean, I think, Especially during this last pandemic, um, I, there was so much going on on the Navajo Nation. Um, there was just, it was just so much going on in the Navajo Nation. There was so much death happening. It was, I mean, because COVID really took a lot of people on the Navajo Nation. But what I think it also did was it enlightened the world to the fact that we continue to live without water and electricity even in this day, um, and. Somehow we managed to do it every single day, regardless, um, and we survive out there with nothing. So I think it was something that people were surprised to see in the media. And, you know, I don't think anyone's ever um, ever mentioned that or talked about that before. I mean, it's just part of our daily lives, I guess, like hauling water and doing things like that. You know, and that's part of the the beauty and the power of this book is that we, since we experience Rita growing up and at the same time in, in her own culture, we see her growing up in her own culture and living that kind of DIY day-to-day -day life and making all those choices. <clears throat> but we also see her, you know, in, immersed in the, you know, the, the 21st century with all these cameras. And I think that those two parallels, you do a great job of putting us in the DNA culture and in the the conflict between the DNA culture and 20th century America, which are quite different, without making that an issue. And that is the one of the real powers of this book was that planned or did that just happen as a result of your choice of plot and character? Well, I know that when I was in the early stages of writing the book, I realized pretty quickly that it was kind of it was kind of a statement of how a lot of a lot of native native people live. I think a lot of people think that native people all live on the reservation or on their reserves. Um and fact of the matter is like 80% of us can't survive out there because there are no jobs or infrastructure. And so we are forced to live in the cities or the border towns that surround our communities. Commute, we drive a ton um, just to maintain our, um, our lives in the city. Um, and 
the life um, you know, of our moms, our grandmothers, our families back home. And this is something that every single Navajo Diné person can tell you that they have dealt with, is that um, that idea of you can't, you can't survive without living in a city or in a bigger town. You need a job. You need to go to school. All of that stuff happens off, outside of the reservation. And it's an important part of who we are. And I think it's just something that we don't explore on media. Everything is about the reservation or about, um, you know, tropes. It's like the only, <laughs> you never see us as doctors, as lawyers, as teachers. I mean, it's just, it's non-existent. And so when I was doing, when I was writing this, I was like, good, this is happening. The fact that it's that, that dichotomy of, of living in two, two different lives. Um, in order to maintain the life you you know you want for your family back home, um, so it's I mean I think that's a real statement of, uh, for me about how we're portrayed, um, books um, on the TV and the movies as being people who are just on the reservation and just live these stationary lives and it's a trope and it's time to you know see us as we really live. And Rita is one of those people that live in the city and they work hard and they do that work and they, they send the money back to grandma. And, you know, that's what we, that's our, that is our obligation. She has the same obligation. You know, you definitely immerse us in the first chapter in Rita's life in the city as a photographer. As you also, and this is really cunning as we think about it, this is one of the longest and strangest introductions of a secondary character. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about that, but it's true. We, we meet this character. This character is literally assembled bit by bit, <laughs> sort of. Uh, so, so uh, talk about. Did you know who she was before you assembled her, so to speak, through the the series of crime scene photographs, or did that kind of come as a result of the assembly process, so to speak? Uh, well, um, that first chapter came from the class I took. My husband and I went to CSI class here at APD in Albuquerque at the police department. And it was a 16 week course that taught you everything about crime scene um, investigations. So we learned everything from ballistics, photography, um, diagramming, uh, blood splatter, like everything you could possibly imagine over that 16 week period. And this case in particular was a case that we learned about early on. We saw the diagrams of what happened. They told us it was very, it was a snowy night. And there was something that a detective said, well, this lady basically committed suicide in, in the real case that I learned about at the CSI school. And she jumped off of an overpass on I-40 here in Albuquerque during a snowstorm. And one of the detectives said something to me that really kind of stuck with me. And it was that he didn't think that they would ever find all of her. And I remember him saying that, and I was just, oh, that is just, I didn't think about it that way, but that's just the velocity of traffic and all of it is, you know, just kind of took her everywhere. And um, before people realized that there was a body on the road. Um, so that actually came from a case 
Um, I, I just basically described a few of the photographs that I saw, like the tattoos. Um, we we actually saw a photograph of this woman's leg, and she had a tattoo on it. You could still make the tattoo out, but the piece of flesh was completely a part of her body. It was laying on the asphalt somewhere, but you could still make out her tattoo. And it was just disturbing to me. And I had written a shorter chapter, and it was somewhere in chapter six or seven um, in the early stages of the book. And I was workshopping it for my MFA, and um, my teacher told me that I absolutely had to expand on that sixth chapter and move it to the front because it was just so disturbing. Everyone in class was just so disturbed. And it was there was half the detail within it. It wasn't even what the detail is now. So I went back and really, like, described every single body part um, that, they, that we could find and tried to make it as vivid and as intense as possible and it and it put it in the front and it ended up staying there there were a couple of times um in edits the book got turned into like a chronological chronological order and all kinds of craziness um but it i knew that that first chapter should always be first it's very but i think it really gives perspective to what forensic photographers do and the kind of scenes that they come across on um on a daily basis Sometimes. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Rita is the intensity with which she lives her life and, you know, the lack of sleep, the immersion in the work. And I, that, that's a really hard thing to pull off to make seem realistic, but you really do. And I think that has to do with the intensity of our voice. So... Is this something that came for you as a writer out of the prose or out of the the plot in terms of like she really doesn't have time in terms of the plot to do much else except to be you know follow what what the heck's going on she did, and so her lack of sleep plays into the plot but I'm wondering you know and lends to that intensity of vision. Did Was it the intensity of vision that burned as for you as a writer, or was it the plot that burned, that bled back, so to speak, in the intensity of vision? I think it was both, Rick, um, because I think Rita, for her intensity of vision, I think the lack of sleep made her weaker. It makes it easier for people like Irma to come in and do things because She's too tired. And I think that's kind of what opens the portal for everyone else to start coming in, like the little kid at the crime scene and like different people approaching her um, and her kind of being off her game because she allows people to let them know that she can see them, like the woman in the car accident, right? So like you can tell that her lack of sleep and her lack of eating and just the nonstop being called in to work um, at odd hours and just forgetting to eat and then also maintaining other, you know, like side gigs on the side. And it's just, I think it's a real statement to what it's like to hustle and um, to always be on the ball. And I, I've, I've, I know this because I did that for, I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. And it's like, so I get that being a mom, 
I used to have that forensic job where I would get called the night before, like, oh, you got to get up, you got a deposition starting at seven tomorrow, and here's all the paperwork. And I'm like, oh, man, there goes my whole day tomorrow. I'm going to be stuck in a whole room with lawyers all day. Or, hey, they, you know, I got a call one time. I was leaving work at 4.30, had been working all day on edits on a police video, and I get good home. Half an hour later, I get called because a refinery blew up two hours away. And the law firm needed me to go and help them document the scene. And I was out there till two o'clock in the morning. And then I drove home. And I understand that hustle. I know what that's like to have really crappy jobs and be out there in the middle of the, of the night and then coming home and having a baby that wants to wake up at five o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning or uh, forgetting to eat or all day because you're just. There's no time to, you know, grab a sandwich when you're filming a refinery explosion. Um, so I knew what that hustle was like, and I really wanted to just kind of give it to Rita even more. Because Rita's single. She doesn't even have a kid. So like, I really needed to make, you know, like her, her, her talking to ghosts is almost like her kid because it, it's, it's a constant thing. It's the voice in your head 24-7. And that that feeling translated well for me because I know the hustle and I gave, I gave it to Rita with a little bit more own, you know? Um, and so <laughs> for Rita, but I understand that hustle. And I think a lot of women do. Um, and if they, you know, if when you read that and then being in an industry, basically of men and, um, she rarely meets women on the job. They're all the detectives are men. The lawyers are men. Um, the investigators are men, and that's really true. I mean, I I I can attest to that as well. Um, I only worked for female attorneys or police officers. Never. I don't think I ever worked for a female police officer. Um. So see what I mean? It's just I kind of got the hustle, and I just kind of gave it to Rita, and uh, she she's got it hard harder than I do because she gets calls from all hours of the night from APD or from her boss. So I did. At least I got them kind of staggered. <laughs> At least I got days off. Poor Rita doesn't get days off. You know, one of the uh, really fun parts of a supernatural novel is understanding the rules of the supernatural as created by the writer. <clears throat> and sometimes it seems they're so often not well thought out. There's an old band from the 1970s called Hawkwind. And in the 80s, they did an album as the Hawk Lords. And they had a song on there called Psy Power with a lyric I'll never forget. It's the lyric is, it's like radio. You can't turn off. There's no way to find peace of mind. And that is exactly the problem that Rita has because once Irma makes her way in, Irma comes in with a lot of power and allows, as you are saying, other people to show up. And what's really interesting as a, as a reader of the supernatural horror fiction is thinking about those rules and also the, the hints that some of uh, her grandmother and her grandmother's friends love Mr. Bitsy, Mr. Bitsy rules. And he suggests that 
you never know what's coming through. It might look like a person, but it might no longer be a person coming back. So talk about, you know, creating the rules. I'm hoping we'll see more of Rita and, and more ghosts. And have you expanded the rules of that you started the book with as a result of what you ended up writing in the book? Well, I think the really cool thing about uh, ghosts and about the afterlife is that there are no rules. <laughs> and and I think very early on, I remember getting my MFA. One of my one of my professors said I should write a chapter about the rules of this world. Like, what are the rules of her ghost world? Like, how come some of them can touch her and some of them can't? How come some of them look like lights and some of them are people? Uh, how come um, some are able to come through but some aren't? What, you know, like, and he wanted me to explain that in a chapter. And I just felt, and I never did. I never took him up on that because I felt like, how do we know what the rules are? Who says a ghost can't be alive? Who says a ghost can't show up, in, you know, fully clothed like they died because that's what they want? I mean, ghost, the ghost world is not controlled by us. We don't know when there's not a book of the like the, the guide for the recently deceased that we can look at and know how things work or what portal to go to. Or it's just, that's the thing about it is we, nobody knows. We don't know. We can say we know, or we can say, oh, this person had an out of life or afterlife experience when they died and this is what they experienced. And, um, doctors can say it's all part of your memory, reenacting your brain, and that's why there's people that are able to come back from the dead. But it's like, but you don't know. Nobody knows. So for me, there are no rules to the spirit world. That's why sometimes they come to her all different in all different ways when she's not feeling well, or there, or she's not sleeping, or she's not eating. They can touch her and they can do things. But not all of them can, because not all of them are strong enough. Like, it's just, I think the ghosts are figuring out how the world works just as easy as we are. They don't know. And there are some people who are just stuck there. And they don't know how to move on. What's their deal? I don't know. But it just shows how there are so many planes and so many different ways of thinking about the afterlife. Um, that I don't think that it's fair for us to make rules about it. <laughs> So, you know, for, for Rita, you know, like she wants to be visited by her mom, like after her mom dies. Like, how come that doesn't happen? Like, how come the people that she doesn't want, that she wants to see don't come? Like, how come she never sees her grandpa again? You know, like there are things like that, but I don't want to answer. I'm not going to answer. That's just the mystery of life. You know, it's like, well, you know, that's just, that's just how it works. You know, and some people will come and visit you when they want. And I think that really, that is my own, I think that's really my own, I guess, lamenting, my own sorrow um, for my own grandma. When my grandma died, I fully thought that she would come and visit me or that she would at least, like, she would at least appear in my dreams. I always wanted that, like, her to come see me or have a dream about her after she died. She never has. I have never in my life had a dream about her since she passed away. And I think, in my mind, I think about that and Rita. Um, 
and that that personal experience of how I feel is translated into that that idea of the people that she really wants to see. She she isn't able to. And you know maybe it's some ruin, some ghost world somewhere. But how does Rita know? How do any of us know? And who runs that ghost world anyway? <laughs> you know yeah. you men you mentioned dreams, and. I- um, so I'm. They play a part in this book, of course, and they're they're well done. Do you write down your dreams? You know I don't. I don't. I should. I'm, and I think a lot of it is because I don't know. Maybe since I've become a mom, I don't dream a lot. I don't dream a lot. Um, and I think it's probably because I don't sleep hard enough to have a dream. <laughs> I haven't slept hard enough to have a dream in years. But I have, and I do have dreams. And when they really bother me, they stay with me. Um, and I'll, I remember them for years, uh, you know. Um, but I should. I really should journal some of the dreams I have when I have them because it's fairly rare. Um, but it's something that my mom was really into when I was growing up. She used to have a dream book. Like you dream about something and like, mom, I dreamt about a snake or I dreamt about, you know, chopping all these plants and whatever. And she would go look it up in her book and tell you what, like, what weird psychosis that you were experiencing this week because you had this weird dream. My mom had this crazy book, I remember. Um, but I don't pay, now I don't, like I said, I don't even pay attention. But Rita's dreams are very visceral and they're real. Um, I think it's kind of her way to communicate with some people that she needs to communicate with because she certainly doesn't do it on the on her waking days. There are nice uh, places to kind of take the plot forward in an, in an abstract manner, which is to say that you can have things that happen in dreams that relate to the real world but tell you things about the real world that simply could be told in, in a believable plot twist. Yeah, you can do it all through symbolism and, and moving things through instead of having somebody say it like a boring line in the end of the chapter somewhere. Well, Bob, <laughs> you know, I absolutely love all the people, the, the, Rita's grandmother and Mr. Bitsy and the, the neighbors, and that whole world is really well-developed and, and, and super enjoyable to read about. So talk about creating that world and, cre- you know, the grandmother and, and Mr. Bitsy uh, are such, you know, really memorable characters. So talk about creating them in particular. And what's interesting to me, thinking back on my reading experience, on one hand, while I really turned the plot to find out what was going on in the present with the murder investigation and all sorts of, you know, shenanigans in that sense, I felt equally compelled by grant you know grandma making a lunch and mr bitsy coming over with some kind of oddball advice so that that's a that's an accomplishment well thank you i'm glad and i think it's just um the strength of their characters um and for me it was just describing my own grandmother and her medicine man really he was really like that, and I, I just kind of harnessed as much memories, as many memories as I could about my grandmother and about him, and about the things that we would, I would see and do over at his house, 
Um, and because those people are real people for me, because they're all based on real people. There was a lady um, who lived across the street who had a dog named George Bush. Like, for real, he, she really did. And she would really call for him in the morning. And it would just make us laugh. She would be out there calling for George Bush. And she would never call him George. No, she had to call him by his full name every time. Um, and every, I think every single character in there is based off of, like, the people that used to come visit my grandma in Tohatchee or um, maybe an old uncle I had. Um, so everybody, I can, because I can see their physical resemblance and I remember how they talk and the clothes they wore and, um, you know, everything about them. Um, I'm, that's, I think that's what makes that part of the story so vivid is because I just remember everything about them and I remember how they talk and um, I'm able to put their cadence into the writing and um, kind of give people a little, little portrait of what it's like to live out there. It's different now, too. Um, back then, it was, um, I think it was such a, a more community-minded environment um, than, than now, I think, because everyone's so so far removed from each other these days. It's not the community that I remember. So I just go back to those days of, of what it was like to have a very um, community-minded um, group of people that all lived around together in that little spot. And, and that's all I did. Just describe those people and and for real, like they're real people who are probably a lot of them no longer with us, except in my brain. Um, so it's good to it's good to revive them and to revive that the memories that they gave me. So you know, um, it'll be interesting moving forward with the story. I think she's going to spend a lot more time there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting the way you describe it. Uh, it in the way that as uh, Rita channels ghosts, so are you. And I think that for me, that's one of the interesting aspects of ghosts is we can say that, you know, on one hand, we think of them as the spirits of people communicating with us from the afterlife. But on the other hand, you might say, well, you know, I made the wrong left turn at this at this intersection because I was so used to going to my old house. And you'd say, well, that's just the ghost of, you know, your old house calling out to you. So ghosts speak to us both uh, metaphorically, but also they, we have, we, you know, the, the ghosts of our past mistakes haunt us. The memories of the things we did that, that, you know, we regret doing they literally haunt us in the way that, you know, Bob Marley and the, the Creaking Jeans uh, might, might uh, haunt good old Scrooge or Irma might haunt Rita. Yeah, absolutely. And I think somebody, somebody reviewed the book very recently and made a statement about that, like the fact that while it looks to be a, film, or a book about photography. What it really is, is a book about memories. And that's so true. And the memories are like, just like you say, Rita has these physical ghost interactions. But the main part of a lot of this is people's own reaction to their memories and to the things that have happened to them in their life and, and how they remember that. Not only just Irma, but like her grandmother and remembering her boarding school 
experience and her photographing all those children as they came in, just like her year after year. Um, and and having that memory or that ghost of that experience is is something that is just as haunting as the things that come to see Rita. So you're absolutely right. It's the ghosts of the places, like that house that she burned down, the ghosts of the people like her grandfather, like her grandmother never remarrying or, you know, any of that because of the ghost of the grandfather. You know, it's like how our memories and how um, our lives are changed by the ghosts that we carry. You know, nonetheless, as much as as much as I love the other parts, you know, the the ghosts and the, and grandma and Mr. Bitsy, the crime uh, story that you know serves as the parallel spine to the novel is it, really a, an excellent exercise in you know toe tapping suspense, and you build it up quite well. You know, it starts out kind of well, shall we say smeared, <laughs> but but it slowly comes into focus between, you know, what Irma, where Irma leads Rita and also where Rita just following the clues. Did you uh, map out the, the crime story um, separately from the uh, ghost story or were they always wedded together and... Um, the, the crime story, because the, the prose, uh, Rita's somewhat frantic view of the world by virtue of the fact that she's seen all these ghosts who are telling her things that are maybe terrible or maybe not so terrible, um, really feeds into the kind of the suspense that you create with the crime story. Yeah, I mean, I think they both, the ghost story... From right away, I knew like at least Irma's story was going to start leaking into this case, and eventually the judge story was going to leak into this case. I knew that there because Albuquerque is a small town, and I mean it's a city, but people know, especially in the police arena and the attorneys, um, they all know each other, and I knew that it would be there would be some corruption involved, and it's this is again just basing it off of real life. And I know APD is like under investigation right now for some of the stuff that they do right now. Um, and so, and they, as long as I've grown up here since I was 15, they've all, there's always been issues with the police department. So I knew that there was going to be some element of truth to that. I knew also that Albuquerque is a hub for the drug cartels, um, for gang activity. I think it's just where we are. We're on the, um, we are, our, the middle of our city is the crossing of I-25 and I-40. And we have everything from Juarez to Denver to Phoenix to Los Angeles to Dallas on this side. It's like this center hub for all kinds of bad things to happen. Um, and often it does. I mean, Albuquerque, especially right now, has become a very violent, dangerous city. Um, and I just kind of wrote that in. And the, the cartel thing, I always knew that the cop was going to be bad. Um, I always knew that there was going to be some kind of cartel involvement. It didn't, but it didn't meld until at some of the later drafts 
um, there were, I tried to kill Rita off in a couple of drafts. Um, I um, had a whole uh, another storyline where one of the cartels kidnaps the grandma, which was too far-fetched. Um, so there were several different iterations of how it could go. Um, but keeping it here in Albuquerque and involving everything that I knew to be already happening here, um, I think was the best decision. I think it, it created enough, uh, of, enough tension. Um, but also there's um, a huge paranormal presence in Albuquerque, like every single, supposedly, every single hotel, like the Chemo Theater, like all these different, it's an old town and there's old buildings here and they're all haunted. I mean, um, so there's like this kind of underlying spiritual paranormal presence that happens in Albuquerque that people talk about all the time. And for Rita to be here and be doing that kind of work, it just made sense um, that all of it would meld together. And um, the Irma, Irma was, you know, it was, it was kind of difficult to write Irma, um, but I figured if Irma was a gangster, so Irma's not like 100% clean, nice lady. Um, we know that she's been involved in some fairly nefarious activities. So we also then were able to understand why she's so fishy and um, why she's so intent to make Rita do what she needs to be done. She's not a kind of woman that people say no to. Um, and uh, so all of that is just kind of like a characterization of Albuquerque. It really is, because that's really what Albuquerque is. Those are all the kind of characters that you'll find here. It's interesting to me that how long and intense the drug wars have been as a as a as just a constant presence thrumming in the background, and also that the nature has changed because originally the a lot at least from my perception was. The problem with the drug wars were, were as much with the way the police would just go in and take out the lowest level of people who are the easiest to find and the least, you know, um, responsible, and, and that you know the 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 police were uh, were a lot of the problem. Now it's somewhat changed over. I mean, the cartels, as it were, have you know replaced. Uh, Russian gangsters <laughs> as our go-to bad guys, and they're and not without reason. They're still out there. So, uh, as a writer, I mean, I interviewed a fellow Alfredo uh, Corrado, I think I remember, uh, Cor who was actually uh, who reported on these people and was you know on the death list from from the, one of the cartels. Uh, have you re received any blowback from either from the police, uh, you know, the the crime people you write about, and also too from your own culture for, you know, externalizing, bringing out into the open, writing about ghosts and about death and ab about you know all the terrible stuff that uh, any culture would prefer to avoid a discussion of. Well, I have not had any kind of blowback from the police department, probably because they just haven't read it because they're too busy. <laughs> um, but 
I was very worried about um, what might happen with Navajo readers. That was one of my main concerns um, when I was writing the book. So I've had to um, do a couple of events um, on the Navajo Nation. I think I, I, I did a reading at the Navajo Nation Library, and I did another reading at the Gallup Library, which um, at their book club, which is mostly Navajo. Um, so I was very afraid um, to go to those readings because I was fully expecting to be confronted by somebody um, or to have somebody ask me why I was writing about this and what gives me the right to write about this. And I was happy to say that in both, in both um, situations, I did not have that reaction. I think that a lot of Diné people know um, that this goes on and that um, I had, I, well, also a very pivotal moment. I sold my books at the flea market in Gallup, which is like, if you're, if you're in Navajo, if you're Diné and you're wanting to put yourself out there, that's what you do. Because everybody goes to the flea market on Saturday and everybody uh, makes their rounds. Um, so and if you're an artist, if you're a writer, whatever, you you have a booth over there eventually. So a mentor of mine, Dr. Danette Dell, um, also a Diné historian, and a mentor of mine, she told me I had to go out there and do this, and I was so afraid. Um, but she agreed to go with me, and my mom and her sat in my booth with me with my stack of books and um I was really afraid about reactions, but Dr. Danette Taylor kind of assured me, she said, oh, everybody can talk about, you know, Yiya and, you know, and about you're not supposed to talk about that. But she said, but the truth of the matter is, is that everybody watches The Living Dead or, you know, like, all, everybody does that. Everybody watches zombie movies and death movies and um, they can talk crazy all they want, but they know that they watch this stuff and they read their stuff and they're going to read your book too. So when we were over at the flea market, she was like my like my advertising. She was like, Danae author, reading a, she wrote a scary book. You guys come and get it. It's right here. She's from Tohatsi. And like before I knew it, everybody was coming over. And we sold the book out in like an hour and a half. And a lot of the people that came and bought, it, bought the book were from Tohatsi, which I was super pleased about. Um, and when we had the reading at Window Rock, um, I had such great questions um, about that and about how people, I think, are really at that point where we realize that, yes, this is something that for hundreds of years we have been taught and we, um, as modern Native people, it is something that we need to move past. Um, the world has changed. Things are moving. Things are changing. Um, this particular um, fear and um, avoidance of what of the inevitable is, is something that needs to change. And I think that, especially during the pandemic, I noticed that so many Navajos were being taken advantage of by the funerary industry because of our fear, um, because of our reluctance to even deal with it or to confront it or to to to, um, to follow our, even our own traditional teachings because we're we're so afraid. Um, and I think that it's a new generation of people who understand that it's time to heal. It's time to discuss these situations. It's time to heal from these situations and move past them. So 
I'm ho I'm hopeful that this book kind of starts the discussion about that um, because it's not just Rita. There's hundreds of Diné people that work as police officers, nurses, doctors, pathologists, biologists, scientists who deal with death as part of their job. And because this is a profession and this is what we've chosen to do, or this is what we have to do, um, we're having to, you know, think about our own traditional beliefs and um, about our own superstitions and how we need to change that and how we need to, to move past it and grow from it. So hopefully this book kind of starts that discussion. You're a filmmaker and you're, uh, so you're well-versed writing screenplays. Have you written a screenplay for this yet? It seems like it, I mean, <clears throat> AMC needs to get off the, get off the, uh, the starting marker there, buy this book up and turn it in, into, you know, uh, you could do a great series with a multi-episode arc to cover this book and maybe some single episodes to deal with Rita. I mean, there's just no end to this. So have you started to tap that uh, faucet yet? Um, I have not yet, but I, I, I kind of am. <laughs> I have not finalized anything so far. So I'm just kind of in that almost mode. Um, but I am looking forward, if, if, if it happens, I'm looking forward to bringing in young Diné women who are writers to do the screenwriting work, um, to work on the series or the, or the film. And that's what I want to do. I, I know I have two more books to write in this series, and I'm working on four documentaries at the moment. So I don't really have time to write the screenplay or to run a show. Um, that would just take up all my life right now. My son's getting ready to graduate from high school. And, you know, it's just like a really weird time for me right now to take on too much because I'm trying to have this year um, to, to finish all my projects and to write the second book, which people are really anxious to see and hear. So that that has been my focus and my goal. It's just getting the second book done and, and finishing all these documentary projects I started. Um, but who knows, you know, I, but the, for now, that's, that's my, that's my goal. And, and I, if it, if it does come to fruition and it does end up happening, that is my wish is that I get a lot of young women in charge of this, um, helping me tell the story. And that would be great. That would be my ultimate um, goal. I'm tired. I'm tired of making films, by the way. <laughs> like, almost 30 years is enough, and I'm exhausted, and um, I'm tired of hauling gear. Um, so, um, as soon as I finish these four documentary projects, I'm. I don't think I'm going to make any more films. I'm just too burnt out on it. So that plus, I think that's the other reason why I don't feel like turning it into screenplays. I've done it before. I've had, I've done screenplays before and uh, I know what goes into it and um, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just too busy. <laughs> the new novel by Ramona Emerson is Shutter. Thank you for joining me, Ramona. 
Well, thank you for having me. It was a blast. Such great questions. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.